Welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Immunology. This podcast is a recording of a live Touch Satellite Symposium held in November at the American College of Rheumatology Convergence 2023 in San Diego, California, USA. In this symposium, Professor John Stone is joined by leading experts Dr. Emmanuel Della Torre and Dr. Arezu Kozroshahi. Together, they discuss the pathophysiology and varying clinical presentations of IgG4-related disease, summarise the classification criteria and how to diagnose the condition, and review current treatment strategies for IgG4-related disease, as well as emerging targeted treatment options. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Horizon Therapeutics. This activity is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. Welcome to a discussion and uh, presentation and discussion of our favorite topic, IgG4-related disease. So here we are. Um, this is our agenda. After the introduction and uh, welcome, I'm going to talk about the many faces of IgG4-related disease. Um, and then I will pass it to uh, my colleague, Dr. Emmanuel Della Torre uh, from uh, Milan, who will talk about the diagnosis, um, suspecting and confirming the diagnosis of IgG4-related disease. And then Arazu Kosrashahi from Atlanta, from Emory, and formerly from MGH, um, will talk about the new era for treating IgG4-related disease. We'll have questions at, uh, at the end of each of these uh, presentations, and then we'll have a panel discussion uh, at the end. Here are our learning objectives. Um, I will describe the complex pathophysiology and give you an overview of the clinical manifestations of IgG4-related disease. Then Emmanuel will, talk, will outline the diagnostic and classification criteria for this disease, and Arazu will discuss current treatments for this condition, as well as novel uh, emerging therapeutic options. And now let's move on. So the many faces of IgG4-related disease. So IgG4-related disease was not even known at the turn of this century. It was first recognized to being, as being a discrete condition in uh, 2003. Its true prevalence is not known. It now has an ICD-10 code, which is 89.84. It was assigned an ICD-10 code only last month, and this is going to help our understanding of the epidemiology of the disease a lot. Even before we had an ICD-10 code, ICD-10 code, an estimate of the prevalence in the United States is that there are about 40,000 cases in the United States. That's undoubtedly um, a low estimate, but a reasonable first guess. The disease tend to tends to affect middle-aged to elderly individuals, um, and there is a male predominance, which is really striking. At least two-thirds of the patients are male, and the disease tends to be more severe in males, but females can have disease that is every bit as extensive and severe as males. That's very unusual for an autoimmune condition. So it may not be an autoimmune condition. I refer to it here as an immune-mediated condition because it clearly is that. Um, it has a relapsing, remitting course. It responds to treatment. 
the only identifiable, the, the only modifiable risk factor identified thus far is smoking. But that really seems to pertain only to the retroperitoneal fibrosis subset of disease. Uh, beyond that, we really don't know a whole lot about other risk factors for the condition. Now, the pathophysiology is a little bit complicated, and I'm going to spend some time on it because there are novel therapeutic approaches that are suggested by our current understanding of the pathophysiology. Activated B cells are critical um, to the disease. They present probably a variety of antigens to CD4-positive T cells and probably CD8-positive T cells as well. In response to that continuous antigen presentation, these T cells proliferate and uh, they secrete products that are unusual for T cells to secrete, perforin and granzyme, which uh, damage uh, tissues, and also fibrogenic mediators such as IL-1 beta, uh, TGF beta, and interferon gamma, all of which can lead to fibrosis, which is a hallmark of this condition. B cells, as shown by my colleague, Emmanuel Delatore, can also contribute to fibrosis. And the fibrosis gets a third attacker in the form of macrophages, um, which also secrete additional uh, mediators of uh, fibrosis. So IgG4-related disease is a symphony of inflammation. We've identified a number of the important players, and now we're beginning to be able to target those individually. <clears throat> So this, I won't review this again because I've gone through each of, that, each of these things carefully. So it's a symphony of inflammation, lots of different potential mediators. <clears throat> so the clinical presentation of IgG4-related disease is quite heterogeneous, it, and it is an indolent disease. It does not lead to renal failure fast. It does not lead people to be in the intensive care unit intubated fast. It is a slow condition. Um, the most common presentation is uh, that of a mass lesion. Many patients are misdiagnosed as having a malignancy. Some patients even undergo a modified Whipple procedure because it's concerned, uh, there is concern that they have pancreatic uh, cancer. A and uh, symptoms are commonly attributed to these um, inflammatory lesions. So there are a number of typical organs involved. IgG4-related disease can involve any organ in the body, but there are, there are 10 or 12 that are quite typical. The lacrimal glands, salivary glands, the pancreas, lungs, aorta, retroperitoneum, and kidneys are all typically involved or potentially involved in IgG4-related disease. And most patients have multiple organs involved at the time they are diagnosed. And the disease can change over time so that they add organs over time. And the symptoms are really, um, uh, the symptoms are derived from the, uh, the types of organ involvement. So the head and neck has um, multiple areas that can be affected by IgG4-related disease. The eyes in particular, the extraocular muscles, the major salivary glands, in the chest, the lungs really radiologically are the most protean of organs. The disease has its most protean expression um, in, in the lungs. <clears throat> glands are involved as a rule in this disease. Even the pituitary gland can be involved. And there are a number of other neurological manifestations 
as well. And in the abdomen, perhaps the most serious organ manifestations occur in the pancreas. The pancreas is hit particularly hard in this disease. Here at this meeting at the ACR, our group um, presented data suggesting that 50% of these patients with pancreatic involvement become diabetic, and another 50% um, lose exocrine pancreatic function. And many patients um, are hit at both the endocrine and the exocrine uh, pancreas. So here are some pictures illustrating some of the cardinal manifestations of the disease, submandibular gland involvement. This is almost diagnostic of IgG4-related disease. Here's orbital disease, extraocular muscle disease, as shown by the black arrow. Uh, the extraocular muscle is thickened, and its thickening leads to a proptosis of the right eye. This leads to dysfunction um, of the, uh, the extraocular muscles, and this patient is unable to look to her right uh, because of extraocular muscle dysfunction, unable to look to her right with her right eye. The lungs, as I've indicated, have many different manifestations. Here are multiple uh, pulmonary nodules and pleural effusions. Um, and note the very thickened airways, um, and this is likely uh, results from the asthma and atopic manifestations of this disease. Sarcoidosis can also uh, look like this. This is uh, the classic radiologic finding of autoimmune pancreatitis, uh, an enlarged, swollen, edematous, sausage-shaped pancreas. And after treatment, even after effective treatment, this pancreas has taken a major hit. It is shrunken, it's become highly fibrotic, it doesn't make insulin well, it doesn't make uh, pancreatic digestive enzymes well, hence the risk for diabetes and weight loss because patients just cannot digest food and cannot absorb nutrients. And retroperitoneal fibrosis, a very curious subset of the disease tending to uh, surround uh, the aorta and the periaortitis can reach out and entrap one of the ureters on either side, leading to hydronephrosis and renal damage. This is a patient who has an indwelling ureteral stent because of hydronephrosis. This is the result of a patient who had bilateral hydronephrosis and the ureteral stenosis was so bad that stents could not be passed. She has bilateral nephrostomy tubes. This is a very difficult way to live. Um, those ne nephrostomy tubes drain to bags that are strapped to the patient's leg. Very poor quality of life in these patients. So there are noticeable patterns of organ um, involvement. Uh, many of these patients have atopic symptoms, and we don't understand these particularly well. This is an area that we need uh, better understanding. Um, constitutional symptoms are unusual in IgG4-related disease. It's a multi-organ condition, but constitutional symptoms are unusual. Fever almost certainly excludes IgG4-related disease if that is a major part of the presentation. And weight loss does occur in these patients if they have exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. It's not, it's not unusual for patients to lose 20, 30, or 40 pounds um, if, they, if, they, if they have exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. So there are two subtypes of IgG4-related 
IgG4 related disease that have been described. We have a lot to learn about subtypes. One I refer to as a proliferative subtype. Uh, these patients have multi-organ disease and uh, very elevated um, uh, inflammatory uh, mediators, immunoglobulins. They tend to be hypocomplementemic. In contrast, there is a fibrotic subtype, which tends to affect fewer organs, often just one organ. It's typified by the retroperitoneum. And in these patients, uh, the immunoglobulins are usually normal and patients are not hypocomplementemic. <clears throat> so in quick summary, IgG4 was first recognized as a diffuse, as a, as a distinct disease that might be an autoimmune disease two decades ago. Uh, it is usually insidiously progressive. It is an indolent disease that presents often mimicking a tumor in multiple organs. These are the typical organs that can be involved in IgG4-related disease. And our expanding knowledge of the pathophysiology has offered up a number of targeted approaches to therapy. So question number one, um, what are the outstanding questions related, uh, regarding the pathophysiology of IgG4-related disease? Wow. Well, there's a very long list. Um, we don't know what triggers the disease. Um, there have been a few um, autoantigens that have been identified. Our group has identified galactin-3 as one possibility, but other groups across the world have identified other autoantigens. There doesn't seem to be a single um, autoantigen. Um, other uh, questions about the pathophysiology. Uh, well, as I've indicated already, we don't understand the atopic pathways that are very often prominent uh, in this uh, condition, the asthma, uh, the uh, allergic rhinitis, the eosinophilia not well understood at all. We focused more on the B cells so far in understanding um, pathophysiology. The role of the complement system uh, is really entirely, uh, has, has, has been largely unexplored. Um, about a third of patients with IgG4-related disease are hypocomplementemic. It was once thought that hypocomplementemic indi uh, hypocomplementemia indicated renal involvement. It's now clear that that is not the case, although many patients with renal involvement are hypocomplementemic, not all are hypocomplementemic, and hypocomplementemia appears to represent really more a marker of generalized disease. So it's, um, it's unusual to see a patient with retroperitoneal fibrosis, the fibrotic subset of the disease, be hypocomplementemic. So hypocomplementemia is usually present most often in the patients with proliferative um, disease. Uh, there are multiple, we talk about the B cells, but there are multiple subsets of B cells, and we don't really understand which of these B cells contribute most um, to the pathophysiology of the condition. And the same is true for T cells. Uh, the, uh, the, there's uh, more than one uh, CD4 positive T cell that contributes to the uh, condition. I think we, we, we got from John's presentation how complex the manifestation of IgG4 disease might be, how protein form this disease can, uh, 
can uh, can be. And I think, John, that the the pictures that you you, you show, the clinical picture that you show, uh, speak by themselves in terms of. Uh, uh, with regard to, to the suspect, to when to suspect uh, IgG4-related disease. So I go directly to the core of my presentation, which pertains to the ways we have and the algorithms that we have to confirm diagnosis of IgG4-related disease. In general, I think uh, it's clear that IgG4 has a number of, uh, of, of mimickers around. So it might be um, overlooked and goes in differential diagnosis, especially with mass-forming neoplastic lesions. So the first point here is that cancer needs to be clearly excluded before uh, making a diagnosis of IgG4. Unfortunately, to do that, we don't have any specific uh, biomarker um, that has uh, diagnostic accuracy that we're looking for. Uh, and even serum IgG4 levels, serum IgG4 give the name to the, to the disease, are not considered uh, accurate enough for, for diagnostic purposes because they can be um, normal in, a, in, a, in 30 to 40% of patients at, at, at diagnosis, and they can be found increased in a number of, uh, of mimic or inflammatory, neoplastic or infectious conditions. So to achieve a diagnosis, we want to uh, take uh, a piece of tissue and to analyze, um, perform an histological examination. In particular, we want our pathologists to, to look at some, some, some features, some pathognomonic features, which include, of course, the IgG4 positive plasma cells infiltrate, but not only this, uh, through a simple hematoxylin and eosine staining, we can also find storiform fibrosis, which is a very typical aspect of this disease um, shown in the upper left uh, quadrant, but also obliterative phlebitis, which means that the, vein, the veins collapse under the pressure of the fibrosis, but not the arteries because they have stronger walls. This lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate oftentimes organized in lymphoid follicles, of course, with no clonality, and uh, a mild to moderate eosinophilic infiltrate. Serum IgG, sorry, serum plasma cells, IgG4 positive plasma cells can be found in tissue through immunohistochemistry, and they represent the majority of uh, IgG uh, positive plasma cells infiltrating these tissues. But alone, again, as for serum IgG4, they are not diagnostic for IgG4-related disease. Because again, there are many inflammatory conditions that can be refilled with IgG4-positive plasma cells. This is, for instance, one of our cases showing the vasculitis of the small vessels, some granulomatous lesions, and some necrosis surrounded by a dense infiltrate of IgG4-positive plasma cells. So this is, of course, granulomatosis with polyangitis. So again, we need to uh, to, to, to drive a conversation with our pathologists, which should be focused on not only on the positivity of, of IgG4 positive plasma cells in tissue, but also on other uh, uh, features that can be seen by a simple hematoxylin and eosin staining. So the complexity around the diagnosis of IgG4-related disease is, uh, is uh, captured by two algorithms and tools that we nowadays have to, uh, to improve our ability to recognize, to classify, or to diagnose IgG4-RD. The first of these tools is the classification, the CRU classification criteria uh, that have been developed in 2019 thanks to an international effort 
led by uh, Dr. Stone. Uh, Dr. Stone, in his presentation this afternoon, already went through the the, the, the structure and the uh, and the way we built these classification criteria. So I would just uh, uh, highlight three main features. The first is the fact that uh, uh, these criteria are, are built as a three-step uh, process, which guides the clinicians to entry, exclusion, and inclusion uh, criteria. So entry criteria basically are all those pictures that uh, Dr. Stone showed you before. So any possible presentation with the mass forming lesions affecting multiple or single organs. Then we go through exclusion criteria, which is a very important step of this classification process, basically aimed at ruling out through clinical, serological, pathological, radiological domains, potential differential diagnosis. And then we get into the inclusion criteria. Again, also these inclusion criteria are structures in, in domains. And for each domain, there are variables that can be scored. Uh, if this score reaches 20 or more, then the patient can be classified as having IgG4 disease. Keep in mind that these are classification criteria, not diagnostic criteria. So they are not meant for diagnostic purposes, but they represent really a useful framework for increasing the likelihood of being in front of a patient with IgG4 RD. And um, in particular, there are some clinical features that are scored uh, very, very high uh, to the point that almost alone they can, they can help achieving the diagnosis. In particular, for different areas, different domains, different anatomical sites, for instance, for the retroperitoneum, a circumferential soft tissue surrounding the, the aorta, the infrarenal aorta, is very suggestive of this disease. Uh, as well as the combined diffuse pancreatic enlargement together with signs of sclerosing cholangitis, so biliary tree involvement also is scored very high. Similarly, bilateral renal cortex low density areas has uh, the higher score with regard to the kidney domain. Paravertebral soft uh, tissue in the, in, the, in the thorax as well, and um, the combined involvement of multiple sets of glands either salivary or lacrimal glands, as well as highly suggestive of the disease. Of course, these scores need to be uh, calculated together with, uh, with scores for, for serum IgG4 levels and for, the, uh, for histopathological domain, and altogether, they, they, they help reaching the, these 20 threshold. The other tool we have to uh, diagnose IgG4, in this case with diagnostic ambitions, is the uh, revised uh, comprehensive diagnostic criteria generated and developed by a multidisciplinary team of Japanese researchers and clinicians. Basically, these criteria are uh, also structures in domains, so the clinical, the serological, and the pathological domains. And uh, basically, they are, they, are, they are structures and conceived in a way that we can, we can achieve a definite, a possible, and a probable diagnosis based on the variable combination of these three domains. So a definite diagnosis is achieved in the presence of all these three uh, domains fulfilled. So namely one or more organs with characteristic uh, involvement of IgG4, uh, serum IgG4 levels higher than 135 milligram per deciliter, and two criteria positive out of these three histological uh, uh, features. So the dense lymphocytic infiltrate, the positivity of IgG4 positive plasma cells, higher than 40% over total IgG positive cells, and the typical tissue fibrosis. If only the first two are present, we can uh, achieve only a possible diagnosis. If the first and the third are present, we can achieve a probable diagnosis and a definite one if the three of them are, are present. 
So it's it's uh, kind of interesting to to notice that in these criteria there are no exclusion criteria. So at the end of the day, when we compare the performance of the classification and the diagnostic uh, criteria to identify patients with IgG4-related disease, we realize how important is having exclusion criteria within the algorithm because the um, comprehensive diagnostic criteria, even if revised, uh, they, they, they only have a 50% specificity, suggesting that uh, uh, exclusion of mimicker condition is absolutely important because uh, an IgG4-positive plasma cells infiltrating tissue, a negative serum IgG4 or mass-forming lesions in, in terms of clinical presentation, might well be observed also in very important mimicker conditions, in particular in, in cancer. So that said, this is our summary. Even with high level of clinical suspicion, a diagnosis of IgG4 RD can be very challenging. Definitive diagnosis requires uh, histological confirmation, especially to rule out uh, neoplastic mimickers. The ACR classification, uh, ACR Euro classification criteria are structures in three steps in order to exclude important differential diagnosis. And the Japanese revised comprehensive diagnostic criteria have really high sensitivity, but uh, because of uh, lack of exclusion criteria, they have a, a kind of moderate specificity. So thank you. I'm happy to take any questions. Is it true that there are sites that are less likely to have characteristic histopathologic findings? The lymph nodes, for example. So right, that one, right, that's the right. first one. No, uh, that, that, that's, that's absolutely true. True, and, and depends mainly on two things. First is <laughs> the timing we biops the, the, the lesion. Uh, if the disease is kind of long-standing over there, we might uh, we not find the classic features, especially in terms of the, the, the IgG4-positive lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate if the fibrosis has already uh, um, gone through a, a lot of time. So uh, the, the disease, the tissue basically is, is, is completely uh, scarring. So we only have collagens and we can find the classic uh, inflammatory infiltrate. And on the other hand, this might also, the, the lack of the classic histopathological features might also be related to only a partial sampling of the tissue. Um, we know that there is probably a core of inflammation that then expands in a like of inflammatory wave. So if we sample the wrong, the wrong spot of, of, of the tissue, um, in case, for instance, of uh, non-invasive diagnostic procedures with fine needle aspiration or fine needle biopsies, the risk is to, is to see uh, um, less classic features of IgG4. And then there are for sure organs that might display some strange aspects like the lungs, where obliterative phlebitis is less frequently observed because you know that veins and arteries are kind of inverted in terms of circulation in the lungs. So it's more frequently, uh, um, arteritis is more frequently observed than, than, than phlebitis. In lymph nodes, lymph nodes are very difficult to interpret. That's why they were kind of excluded from the classification criteria uh, because the, the only presence of uh, lymph node enlargement with serum with IgG4-positive plasma cells in, in, in it can be observed in many different inflammatory situations, such as chronic viral infections, ABV, Epstein-Barr viruses, uh, as shows lymph nodes, plenty of, of positive IgG4 uh, cells. So we, we, we need to be, to be careful and rely on the uh, consensus statement on the pathology, which is very clear in terms of organ-specific findings. Um, 
for to, to guide the diagnosis to, to, to our pathologist. And can you comment on, on the value of getting a biopsy in retroperitoneal fibrosis? I mean, it's, uh, it's always important to get tissue. When, when, I, when I can do that, when I can achieve a, a deep retroperitoneal fibrosis, I, I, I always try to, to get there in a way or in another. In general, the best way to approach it, it's a, it's a mini-invasive procedure with the NAGO biopsy, uh, with the needle biopsy. Uh, but for this, you require that the retroperitoneal fibrosis should, should, should be kind of at least two centimeters thick to get with the needle inside. Otherwise, you have to get into laparoscopy or open surgery to get the, the, the specimen. And of course, at this point, you need to weight the benefit versus the, the, the risk of the, of the procedures. But especially in the retroperitoneum, when the retroperitoneal fibrosis has strange features such as asymmetry or poor response to glucocorticoids, you want really to get there and, and rule out a desmoplastic tumor, a mesenchymal cancer, or a lymphoma. So in general, we want to get there, even if um, it's very rare to find all the classic histopathological features in the retroperitoneal fibrosis because of the reasons I mentioned earlier. So is it fair to say that you exhaust all reasonable options for biopsy? Right. And in, if you have exhausted all reasonable options, then you might proceed with empiric therapy. Right. Right. Okay. Great. And one more quick question um, and with a quick answer, if possible. Um, could you elaborate on some additional uh, diseases that can be associated with an elevated serum IgG4 concentration? Yes. Directly from my personal experience, Castleman disease is a disease that mimics IgG4 and then can uh, present with the increased serum IgG4. Uh, there are a number of lymphomas that can do the same thing. And infectious diseases such as tuberculosis is, uh, is known to increase serum IgG4 level and go into differential diagnosis with, with, our, with our disease. So this is a complex disease pathophysiologically. It's a complex disease in terms of sorting through the differential diagnosis. But despite that, we have made great progress in advancing new therapies uh, for this disease. And Arazu Khosrowshahi will speak with you about these. So we're going to discuss the, the treatment in IgG4-related disease. Um, to choose an effective management of IgG4-RD, we need to be able to reduce inflammation, induce remission, maintain the remission, and preserve organ function. As you saw, RGG4RD affects different organs in the body and can uh, definitely affect their uh, function. And uh, the other thing that we need to do is minimize side effect of the medication. So monitoring of the disease activity and the drug to toxicity are very important in terms of management of the disease. And of course, one should factor in the natural history of IgG4RD. Very rarely in occasional cases, a spontaneous remission happens. As you heard in Dr. Stone's talk, this disease is an indolent and progressive um, disease that can involve multiple organs and uh, addition of multiple organs over time happens all the time. And if it's left untreated, it can cause irreversible damage of the vital organs. Glucocorticoids are still the cornerstone of IgG4RD treatment, specifically for the induction treatment. In 2015, a document uh, in terms of guidance for the management of IgG4RD was uh, published, and that was a consensus between international experts that concurred that usually 30 to 40 milligram equivalent of the prednisone uh, of glucocorticoid treatment usually uh, induces remission in this patient. And 
it's recommended to taper it over eight to 12 weeks. And in the studies, we have seen between 97% to 100% of the patients respond to the, this dose of a steroid. And usually the disease, those tumors that you just heard, the infiltration of the organs we just saw in the pictures, they melt away and go away. But relapses are common following the steroid taper regimen that you just saw. And of course, as uh, rheumatologists, many of you, we don't want to keep patients on long-term steroid treatment. And after the tapering of the steroid, usually patients present with either organomegaly or organ dysfunction on either the same organ they came with or the new organ involvement. And in the multiple different studies, it's been shown actually between 24 to 54, and I've seen even a study, 67% of patients flare or relapse uh, after two to three years of the disease. So there is a maintenance uh, treatment required. It's not only enough that we induce uh, remission with the steroid. We need to think about maintaining these patients on some kind of treatment that would keep their disease quiet. In many countries, still low-dose glucocorticoid is, uh, is used for the maintenance treatment of IgG4RD, and long-term glucocorticoid treatments are very well known, specifically for this population that are middle-aged to elderly. Many of them, as we heard, 50% of them have pancreatic injury that uh, uh, makes them prone to diabetes and prediabetes, so the side effects are uh, more pronounced in these patients. Multiple studies, case series, and uh, randomized clinical trials have looked at uh, conventional, traditional immunosuppressive medications, but evidence for their efficacy is pretty sleek. Um, maintenance therapy with B-cell uh, depletion has been used and is being in off-label use uh, in many countries. And making a decision uh, to how to treat these patients is multifactorial. And of course, there are some disease-related factors that can influence the, the physician's decision regarding how to treat these patients. As we heard, this disease have different subtypes in terms of inflammatory or fibrotic. You're dealing with a retroperitoneal fibrosis that is more scarred. It's very different how to approach that treatment compared to a patient that comes with an inflammatory uh, elevated serum IgG4, elevated inflammatory markers. Clinical disease phenotypes, if a patient comes with just a submandibular gland involvement, is very different than someone who has multi-organ involvement. For urgency of presentation, uh, someone may have just incidental lymphadenopathy as a presentation of this disease, but the person who has bleary stricture you can't afford to let them flare again because the second flare may cause significant scar in the area and uh, progressive uh, cirrhosis. So you have to make a decision to put them on maintenance therapy at the time that you're doing the induction treatment. And there are predictors of relapse. We know some of our patients from the day one that they will relapse as soon as you taper their steroid. The factors that have been identified are multi-organ disease involvement, uh, prior flares, elevated serum IgG4, usually more than two times of the upper limit of normal, elevated serum IgE, and eosinophilia. When you see that, you know this patient will flare as soon as you taper their steroid. So not only disease-related factors can influence our decision for treatment, patient and social-related factors influence us every day how to treat these patients. Of course, and Treatment of a 30-year-old is different from an 85-year-old. 
comorbidities. If your patient has significant diabetes, is dependent on insulin, you should try to shorten or revise your uh, steroid taper regimen. Uh, public health factors. We all uh, went through the pandemic. Uh, you think twice before putting a patient on B-cell depletion uh, when you are in the middle of a pandemic or you patients are waiting to receive vaccines. And of course, the most important that has caused different strategies all over the globe in, in terms of countries' uh, practices is uh, coverage of the insurances. For, for example, B-cell depletion is not covered in many countries and they can't use that. So these are all the factors and uh, many more factors that influence individual patient treatments in uh, terms of how we decide to treat these patients. So uh, in the past decade or so, we have gained significant uh, knowledge about pathophysiology of IgG4D and Dr. Stone summarized it today for us. And uh, this is very fortunate to be in the era that there is mechanism-based and targeted therapies that can help us to treat conditions that we know some basics about their pathophysiology to avoid um, and complete immunosuppression with glucocorticoids. And for that reason, uh, about two decades ago, we thought that rituximab or B-cell depletion would be a great mechanism to treat this condition. And this has been shown in open-label trials and multiple case series that it's uh, efficacious and effective in this disease. Uh, in Ebilizumab, which is a humanized monoclonal antibody against CD19 and depletes wider range of B cells at plasma blast, is underway with the first international uh, placebo-controlled trial for treatment of IgG4RD. Uh, and we are hoping that would be a tre treatment option in the future. Uh, Obexilumab is an anti-CD19 with affinity to FC gamma 2 b receptor that uh, down regulates B cells, not deplete B cells. And that is also underway in the studies for IgG4RD. Abatacid, Belimumab uh, have been tried in IgG4RD. Uh, BTK inhibitors, two BTK inhibitors are uh, uh, being studied in IgG4RD. And anti slamet 7 Lutuzumab is also in NIH trial uh, being studied in uh, IgG4RD. So this is a very exciting time to have all these uh, different uh, targeted uh, uh, treatments for IgG4RD in multiple uh, phases uh, undergoing uh, uh, currently. And we are very hopeful these novel, uh, novel targeted agents uh, will make one or more than one, hopefully more options for our patients that we can make decisions based on different disease and uh, patient-related factors. Uh, to have uh, that possibility to make that decision. So in summary, treatment decisions should be individualized based on the individual patient, based on the natural history, as well as patient and disease-specific factors. Glucocorticoids remain the cornerstone for inducing disease remission. In terms of maintenance, again, we make different choices based on uh, when we see the individual patient to decide to put them on low-dose steroid, or go ahead and do the B-cell depletion, uh, or use other medications. Advances in understanding the pathogenesis of IgG4D has prompted the development of novel targeted agents that may provide steroid sparing options in the future. And lifelong follow-up of patients with IgG4D is advisable. As I mentioned at the beginning, uh, these patients can have this indolent progressive disease, and if we leave them 
uh, untreated with the first induction of the uh, treatment and control of their symptoms, they may still have ongoing disease activity. So it's very important that we follow up the patients. Thank you for your attention. So first, I wonder if you would uh, opine, opine a bit about the differences in treating the disease in adults as opposed to children. That's a great question. Uh, so in general, we don't see that many children with IgG4D. There are definitely uh, case reports and case series in the literature, uh, but it's more common in elderly and middle age. Uh, so I mentioned the age thing as, as one of the factors that definitely I consider in my practice when I treat the patients. So uh, the immune system in general is more active in uh, younger uh, individuals and children. And definitely with induction treatment, you have to consider maintenance therapy for uh, 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 younger and children. Um, and the other thing is they're going to long, uh, they're going to live longer and they will develop this cumulative damage if left untreated. We, we believe that there is a sub uh, micro inflammation or whatever that we call it going on in these patients. And if we just wait and watch, they may develop more further damage. So I would monitor them closely. I would treat them, especially if they have urgent organ involvement, more aggressively with um, uh, what we have in terms of maintenance therapy, V-cell depletion, or other medications, and watch them closer than other individuals. So pushing on that just a little bit more, uh, none of us is a pediatrician, but uh, I wonder if um, pediatricians are reluctant to use rituximab, B-cell depletion, or do they um, are they perfectly happy leaving a pediatric patient on steroids for a long period of time? Um, I can't really say about the uh, pediatricians how they do, or at least the referrals that I've received, I, I have uh, uh, been getting from my uh, colleagues is that they are pretty comfortable on initially starting with high dose of steroid and putting them on rituximab, at least what I've seen. Uh, but I know there are some pediatricians that uh, put patients on azathioprine, mycophenolate uh, before they can go to the B-cell depletion. And as you point out, there's not a whole lot of evidence that these non-biologic DMARDs really work very well in this disease. That's been my experience too, that pediatricians are usually not reluctant to use uh, B-cell depletion in the right patient. <clears throat> um, another quick Question and very important also, um, how do you monitor therapeutic response in a typical IgG4 related disease patient? Maybe a patient with uh, proliferative disease. How do you monitor the, that response? That's also a great question. We, uh, we wish we had better biomarkers to be able to do that. But at this point that we don't have that many uh, good biomarkers that go uh, well with the uh, disease activity, we use combination of the serology, elevated IgG4, I mentioned IgE, uh, you heard in the other talks, uh, low complements, eosinophilia as the lab markers, and we also use image. So initially when I evaluate a patient uh, uh, after the physical exam and labs, I do the CT scan of the chest, abdomen, pelvis uh, to just understand what other organ involvement they have. And uh, depending on uh, what I found after the treatment, I follow that a specific organ involvement closely. So if, for example, they have a liver um, uh, involvement uh, after the treatment, if it is the rituximab, two months after I repeat the involvement of the liver with the MRI, MRCP, or whatever imaging that would show me if the uh, patient responded to the treatment, um, I 
tend to repeat the CT scan of the chest and abdomen yearly in the first three years just to understand their disease better. And after that, based on their uh, involvement of the disease, make a decision how to follow. With the head and neck area, it's easier to examine. With the lacrimal glands, uh, submandibular glands, definitely your exam can help you. But we know that patients can develop myositis or any any sign or symptoms that would make you suspicious, you have to repeat imaging for that. We'll go ahead now and uh, move on to our case presentation. So George is a 60-year-old man. Um, he had sudden onset of abdominal pain and developed jaundice and weight loss. He has a medical history of multiple allergies. Uh, serological evaluation showed abnormal liver function tests and an elevated CA-19-9. Radiology showed an abdominal ultrasound, uh, which demonstrated extensive bile duct dilatation. And then he underwent a ser serial CT, MRI, and MRCP, uh, which revealed a 4.6-centimeter uh, mass in the head of the pancreas. We've had lots of patients like that. <clears throat> so which additional tests would you perform? A, would you biopsy to rule out or detect malignant cells and stain for IgG4? B, would you measure response to high-dose prednisone? That is, put the patient on high-dose prednisone and see how he responds. C, would you measure serum IgG4 concentrations? Um, D, would you perform a PET scan to detect uh, pancreatic and extrapancreatic lesions? Which of those would you uh, discuss? Maybe Arazu, could I have you address that question? What would you do? Sure. Uh, I would try to get biopsy, as we have talked about, uh, but... For me, that biopsy doesn't happen, so I have to refer them. So I would do the, measure the serum IgG for myself and then try to arrange the biopsy. So if you found that the serum IgG4 was elevated to 130, uh, upper limit of normal being 86, so it's elevated, would you stop there? No, I would, I would send them for a biopsy. Okay. All right. Emmanuel, would you do anything differently in that, in that list? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I would go for, for, for a biopsy. Oftentimes in, in clinical practice, you do three things at the time and then while you're waiting for the exams and the results. So probably I would, of course, measure serum IgG4 to substantiate the, the suspect and the PET-CT scan because here the main differential is pancreatic cancer. So I, I would go for, in the, in the, in the scheme, I would, I would use the PET-CT scan to track also potential metastasis or other sites which are easily biopsable, but in any case, I would w wait for the histology to... Do you, ever, do you ever use a diagnostic trial of high-dose prednisone? Uh, no. Um, not for the uh, only pancreatic head uh, mass that is causing biliary ductal dilatation. If the CT scan shows bilateral enhancement of the kidneys and some periaortitis plus this, then I'm kind of like sure that's the IgG4 already with the elevated serum IgG4, I would. But if it's solely a pancreatic mass that may be responsible for biliary ductal dilatation, I would not. Right. 
So I think the order here, there is an order. A rheumatologist would certainly order serum IgG4 concentrations first, and then uh, uh, perhaps biopsy if that is equivocal. Um, and then CT scan would, or PET CT would probably be the last thing on the list uh, that, that, one, that one would do. But of course, a very careful physical examination to try to find uh, disease in other, in other organs. I will summarize just by saying that IgG4-related disease is a remarkably rewarding disease to diagnose. Typically, patients have seen multiple other care providers. By the time they come to you, if you're able to make the diagnosis, um, then that is really remarkable for the patient. It's also a, an incredibly rewarding disease to treat. Um, and now we have learned enough about the disease to develop targeted therapies uh, that we're really entering a very exciting era, era in which hopefully we'll have approved therapies that will really alter these patients' lives positively uh, for a long time to come. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access more content on this topic on touchimmunology.com. Mm-hmm.